It's the Bits and Pieces podcast. So hello and welcome everybody to September's Bits and Pieces, our collection of clips drawn from the various things that were happening around Scotland in September, or at least the ones I noticed. My guest this week is James. Hi, glad to be here. Glad to have you. The first big thing in September was the Edinburgh Rally, and this was Yes for EU and Believe in Scotland working together. I think it's fair to say it was very successful, decent size, although there were lots of people, as ever, queuing up to query the estimates of crowd size, as if that actually matters. You know, there was there was several thousand people there. It was a beautiful day. It was extremely extremely good-natured. It is a bit disappointing that some of the other parts of the Yes movement were getting into kind of, what shall we say, turf wars. Sure. Um, but on the day, it was a really positive march and impressive lineup of speakers and some new voices as well. We enjoyed Kelly and Alistair who compared it. Nice to get some new folk on there. We podcasted the speeches a couple of weeks ago, so if you want to hear all the speeches, you can get that from our website, scottishindipod.scot. But I'm going to start off this month's bits and pieces with a clip from Humza Yousaf's speech at the rally. It's just a section of it. It was a good speech anyway. He seems to be quite comfortable in those situations, but there was a bit in the speech I thought, oh, that is so well said. I want you to imagine that we are standing here again, gathered not in our thousands, but this time in our millions. The vote has been won, the negotiations with the UK government done. And here we are standing, looking at giant screens that are showing the proceedings of the Scottish Parliament. I'll be in there, but don't worry, there'll be plenty of folk out here. (laughs) And we imagine that moment when the presiding officer looks at the results of the motion in front of them and announces that the Scottish Independence Bill, which will repeal the Act of the Union, has been passed by a majority of that Scottish Parliament. And you take that feeling And you take that inspiration and you make sure and I will make sure that we will knock every single door in this beautiful country. We will talk to every single Scot with patience, with persuasion. That is our task here at hand because remember this, this journey for Scotland to regain her independence was not started by us. We are the latest custodians of that journey, of this cause. But it wasn't started by us. It's a journey that's been going on, not for decades, but for centuries. Ladies and gentlemen, we may not have started the job, but it's our job for the sake of our children, our grandchildren, and those future generations that are yet to be born to get on with it and finish it. And I'll be by your side every single step of the way. Thank you very much, Edinburgh! Now, you weren't at the march, were you? You were working. That's right. But you have heard the speech, so any thoughts? I thought it was a strong rallying cry. <laughs> Is that all you're going to say? Last I heard you were a pro-indie podcast, I'm probably not going to bother putting all the rest of it <laughs> It's an old tactic, asking you to imagine what it's going to be like when you win as a way of motivating you. But actually, it's an old tactic because it works. Imagining the future is uh, is very inspirational. And I did get a little shiver down my spine when he was saying that, you know, the idea of imagine we're here and we've won. It is quite a good thing to keep in our minds, especially when things are so miserable, as they often are. And following on, and the idea of imagining a positive future as a way of motivating yourself to get towards it, there is a new group which has just launched a campaign based around, I think they've got seven videos which are set in the future. It's ordinary people giving an idea of what Scotland could be like after a vote and not the sort of process of a referendum and we know you know the campaigning leading up to it and the the immediate aftermath of oh right what next who does what but once all the dust has settled 
it's an idea of here's the kind of future we could have if we go ahead. And they're called Future Voices. They have a YouTube channel. The videos are being released one a week. And they're just ordinary people trying to think, what could life be like once we can put all this behind us? And, you know, I don't know about you, but I think that the independence process seems to have been dominating Scotland, certainly since 2016, if not since 2014. And actually, it'd be quite nice to do other things. (laughs) But to do that, we have to get over the process and then we can start reaping some of the rewards. So that's what I quite liked about this event. They were looking beyond the immediate process into what kind of Scotland could we be looking at. The clip we're about to play now is on, I think it focuses its values, isn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah, the overriding message is values. Yeah. This week on Changing Lives, we catch up with Kelly, director of a membership organization representing charities, social enterprises, and good causes across Scotland. Along with the vast majority of Scots, I value people, place and planet for the many above profit, power and privilege for the few. Now, no one is left behind. And it's undeniable that Scotland is now a fairer, more equitable and inclusive place, with charities morphing into modern cooperatives and joint ventures. Those have infused business and commerce with a firm focus on purpose and well-being for all Scottish citizens and their communities, something that was only made possible when Scotland took charge of its own affairs. At the election, I happily voted yes, as I realised that along with others in Scotland, we must vote on values, not just tinkering with policies or idly waiting for things to get better. It's not that Scotland has better values than others, It's just, it was clear that staying in the UK with its increasingly divergent values was never going to deliver the fair and inclusive society we desired. It's fascinating to witness how Scotland's age-old principle of the sovereignty of the people is now writ large, based on the claim of right expressed throughout the centuries, now re-energised as the basis for a true democratic constitution. And now we're citizens, not subjects. All people here are valued and they create value. And that value stays here, flowing within and between our communities, embracing and embedding the Scottish values of fairness, kindness and care within the rich tapestry, or should I say tartan, of our wonderfully diverse people, old Scots and new. Kelly has also noticed how values have transformed the way we measure our economy. We don't use GDP, which is only about money. Instead, we use a well-being index to measure progress and sustainability, to truly gauge our economy and prosperity as it relates to us as citizens directly. We now keep our shared spaces beautiful and we enjoy a balance between land custodianship and access. And we've created a truly caring society for all. No one is left behind. When someone gains, no one else is expected to lose. Scotland is the most welcoming place in the world. It's not where we come from that matters, it's where we're going together. That's who makes us who we are. It's truly a land where I can now say it's all of us first. So, for Kelly and many others, independence has meant that these core Scottish values have finally found expression. Sean Harris, Scottish Vision, Stirling. Now, when you first listened to this, you didn't realise it was an aspirational future thing, did you? You thought it was somebody just describing current day. Yeah, sight unseen, the initial lead-in sort of gives you the impression, oh, it's a person who's interviewing another person and it's all happening present tense. And then as it goes on, you sort of come to this realisation, oh, wait a minute, they're talking as though they're in the future. Ah, right, I get it, this is... If we were to get independence, this is all the nice things we could have. Did you find the picture being painted an appealing one? The picture painted is, yeah, obviously an appealing one. The thing that I and some people might find off-putting is more that it's really idealistic, blue sky, everything is not just good and we're working on it, it's just 
Perfect. It was perfect from the minute we attained independence. <laughs> and so that kind of thing is good. It's aspirational, but sometimes it doesn't sit right with me when I hear that kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah, I suppose if you've only got a few minutes to put forward an idea of what might a new Scotland could be like, you're going to say, well, the drain's still going to overflow, the trains won't run on time. You know, you're going, you are going to focus on the benefits. But Future Voices YouTube channel, we're hoping to interview the person who you heard on there playing the part of the interviewer. interviewer. We're hoping to interview him on a future episode of Scottish Independence Podcast, hopefully this month, so we'll find out a bit more about that. But in the meantime, Future Voices is the YouTube channel. Now, the long-awaited SNP conference is coming up in mid-October. There has been uh, a summer of collecting views from different branches in the SNP, I believe. Uh, just a reminder that Scottish Independence Podcast is not party political. Homsa Youssef and Stephen Flynn have put forward a joint motion to conference. It's an amendable motion. It's obviously up for debate. I have read it for you, but just to be clear, I am not in the SNP. This is not my motion. Here's what they're proposing. Conference believes that if the SNP subsequently wins the most seats at the general election in Scotland, the Scottish Government is empowered to begin immediate negotiations with the UK Government to give democratic effect to Scotland becoming an independent country and to take the following actions. Publish withdrawal from Westminster, a new partnership agreement, which would set out the detailed terms we would seek in discussions with the UK government for Scotland becoming an independent country and include draft legal text on the transfer of powers from Westminster to the Scottish Parliament necessary to prepare for independence. Conduct a nationwide consultation on a draft interim constitution, which would be the founding document of an independent Scotland. Prepare the ground for Scotland to become an independent member state of the EU by establishing an envoy position who would be the representative of the Scottish Government in Brussels. And that's signed by Humzi Youssef and Stephen Flynn. And it is open to amendment at the SNP conference. So what did you make of that as a proposal? I know you're not in the SNP either, but as two non-members of any political party, did that spark your interest at all? Did you think that was a reasonable way of proceeding or not? Well, it's fine, but it doesn't deviate from any of the messaging that I've heard up until that. It's still essentially, look, we're going to try and get yet another mandate. Once we get that mandate, then we need to get into action really quickly, and then we need to cut ourselves out from the UK apparatus, and then we need to start tidying things up so the EU can come in, but we've been saying that all along. This next clip comes from uh, a programme that we did with Graham McCormack, who is an SNP member, in fact is, we believe, challenging Mike Russell for the presidency. Graham has put forward a different variation on that motion, to conference. His involves MPs withdrawing first, then negotiating, and then coming up with a vote. So here's Graham to explain his thinking. I finished this off with just a resolution that was submitted to the SNP conference committee. Unfortunately, it's not appeared on the, the draft agenda, albeit we are trying to get the, the committee to consider it, either by way of an amendment to the ones which they have put on, and we'll see how it goes. But basically, it, it just says that we declare that Scotland is a sovereign country. We ask the Scottish government to ensure that it uses the powers that it has got so that dissolution does not prejudice the basic financial security of our citizens. We commit all our members to prosecute the dissolution of the United Kingdom at the forthcoming election. And we basically say that what would happen is that on a positive vote the day after the election, the SNP MPs and inviting others from other parties too to withdraw from Westminster, declare the dissolution of the Union, create a provisional government of Scotland, remove the jurisdiction of the United Kingdom Supreme Court and advise the United Nations and the international community that the kingdom is resolved and that um, we will adhere to the Vienna Convention on the Succession of States in Respect of State Property and declare that Scotland will take responsibility on an equitable basis for the rights and obligations of the former United Kingdom. There are always camps that wanted to go faster and camps that wanted to go slower. And one of the options on the table has always been some kind of event happens that gives mandate 
and then in this case it's the fast option of and then immediately out as opposed to the slower option of and then paperwork and then out yes that, okay that's true so which of those two appeals to you most you won't shoehorn me into any of these camps <laughs> <laughs> okay, hedging your bets there. Um, we will have to see what the outcome is from the SNP conference, which I say is mid-October. Marlene and I might be doing some kind of attempted roundup of all the different positions that we think are floating around. Whether that happens or not depends on if we can fit it in. We've been quite busy recently, but uh, if we can, we will return to this. If you want to watch the full presentation by Graeme McCormack, you can get it on Independence Live's YouTube channel or you can get it on our website, scottishindipod.scot. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. Back in Holyrood, Parliament has reconvened after summer recess. As always happens, the First Minister gave outline of the programme for government, which is this is what the government's going to be focusing on for the, the year ahead. A lot of it was very much the same as you would expect, the same that was there last year and probably pretty standard stuff. But there was one area where he did catch my attention because he seemed to be tackling something head on, which needs to be tackled. Uh, and that was the question of toxic masculinity. Presenting officer, we live in times when the rights of women in many parts of the world are regressing. It is important that governments who believe passionately in taking a stand against misogyny, including state and institutional misogyny, stand up and be counted. That is why we will work with Gillian Mackay to support her bill for safe access for abortion. It simply cannot be right that women feel in any way impeded in accessing health care. And we will bring forward legislation to criminalise misogynistic abuse following the public consultation and Baroness Kennedy's report into the issue. The Me Too movement, the Reclaim the Night marches, and the response to the murders of Sarah Everard and Sabina Anessa have instigated a movement of women sharing their stories about everyday sexism, about harassment, about the tragic and violent crime women are too often subjected to. The steps the Scottish Government is taking to criminalise misogynistic abuse and improve our criminal justice system, they're in part a response to that. But they cannot be the only response. There's a much bigger responsibility on our society as a whole, and particularly on all men, to create a positive change. Men, all of us, myself of course included, need to do more than simply call out negative male behaviour. We need to tackle what is often called toxic masculinity, which harms men and boys, as well as of course women and girls. We must build a society where men feel confident in taking a stand against misogyny. But to do so, we must also promote the positive and highlight to boys and men the benefits that positive masculinity can provide for their everyday lives, how it can build respectful, healthier relationships with their partners, with their families, with colleagues, with society, and also lead to better mental health and well-being for men and boys. The Scottish Government doesn't have all the answers on this. I cannot take it on alone. But it is a challenge we will return to, and as First Minister, I'm committed to leading on this issue in my own actions and those of the government that I lead. You know, somebody standing up there role-modelling what are, I think, the right attitudes, how much effect does that have? Perhaps on its own, not very much, but in terms of, I suppose you've got to start somewhere with some kind of leadership vision of what you think our stance as a country should be, and either we're okay with misogyny and toxic masculinity and violence against women, or we're not. And if we're not, you have to start with the, the leader saying, no, we're not having this. Yeah, well, it's following the standard model, which is, I know there's a problem, and I reckon our policies will fix it. Mm. That's the basic model, and it's been that way for a long time. But it is good that he has acknowledged these issues, obviously. Yeah. It's something that has been around, and I have heard of it for the last, I mean, quite a few years. I mean, the Me Too movement started quite a while back now, as, as things stand. But yeah, no, it's, um, it's positive to hear him talking about it as one of his key issues. And then the programme for government continued into perhaps more... Um, expected territory, but I thought this was quite a good summary of the government's approach. Presenting officer, in conclusion, at the start of this statement, I made it clear the Scottish Government will always be on the side of the people we serve. Scotland is, certainly should be, a land of opportunity. 
But I know it doesn't always feel like that. To people bearing the brunt of a Westminster cost of living crisis, to families living in poverty, to struggling businesses, to those who still face consequences of discrimination and inequality. I get that. That's why this programme for government tackles poverty and inequality head on. As part of our work to create opportunities and build strong communities. In the year ahead, we will help more than 300,000 children with more than £1,000 a year through the Scottish Child Payment. We'll increase social security spending by almost a billion pounds. We'll expand free school meals. We'll widen access to financial advice. We'll help more parents buy healthy food. We'll help disabled people with the most complex needs so they can live independent lives. We'll safeguard the rights of tenants. We'll promote payment of the living wage. We'll increase the pay of childcare and social care staff. And we will expand high quality childcare. We will do all of this, first and foremost, because it is the right thing to do. But also, as I know from my own family history, because providing people with support and security helps them to contribute to society and create opportunities for others. This programme for government sets out how we will work with partners to, to tackle poverty, to promote growth, to strengthen the public services we all depend on. The people of Scotland should be left in absolutely no doubt whatsoever. This Scottish Government is on their side. This programme for government shows how we will make progress towards a fairer, wealthier and greener Scotland. And I am delighted, Presiding Officer, to commend it to this Parliament. Do you think he missed anybody out there? In short, I'm glad that he is seen to all areas of society and that he believes his programmes will help. Well, it certainly sounds a lot more positive than anything that's coming out of Westminster. And if anybody listened to Suella Braverman's downright racist, cruel, bizarre speech in uh, New York, I certainly would rather be facing a, a programme for government that actually tries to help people rather than working out how many people you can round up and ship off to Rwanda. Further on in the discussion on the programme for government, Ross Greer, I thought, had a good contribution. And of course, the Greens are part of the Scottish government. Environmental, social and economic justice aren't separate concepts that require separate solutions. When the injustices can often be traced back to the same root causes, the solutions must be holistic. That's the theory underpinning green politics, the Butte House Agreement and this programme for government. Despite the challenges of inflation, Brexit and the UK government's unique combination of incompetence and outright malice, this programme confirms that we are building a fairer, greener economy for Scotland. Nowhere is that clearer than in the support given to the renewables industry. When the Scottish Greens joined the government two years ago, one of the first tasks that we threw ourselves into was the reform of the national planning framework. One common point of feedback that we hear from businesses in the renewable sector, particularly in onshore wind, is that the glacial pace of the planning process has put them off from developing new sites in Scotland. When NPF4 was published last year, it was described as a remarkable and major step forward by Scottish renewables. Growth in renewables in Scotland is now happening at almost twice the rate in England. Our geography alone makes us a potential renewable powerhouse, but we can't realise that potential without the support of national and local government. Reforming the planning process is one way in which the Scottish Government has done this. And today's confirmation of a sectoral deal for onshore wind is another, particularly the further improvements proposed to the planning process, halving the average time before a decision on Section 12 applications from two years to one. Without the major economic levers still reserved to Westminster, these are the practical steps that we can take to build that greener economy for Scotland. It's also how we build a more resilient economy. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has given us a hint of the instability to come in the global energy markets as a result of the climate crisis. Electrifying critical sectors like transport and heating and completely decarbonising our electricity supply will insulate Scotland from what will now inevitably be deeply unstable decades to come. Wind turbines have become the symbol of Scottish renewables, but a broad mix of sources is clearly needed, which is why the Scottish Greens were keen to ensure that this programme included a commitment to develop a new vision for solar. Providing certainty to businesses in that sector, as well as to other potential solar providers like local councils, will allow the sector to flourish, or at least to undo the damage and job losses of the decade lost after David Cameron's slash support for solar back in 2012. Maximising the economic benefits of the transition to net zero goes beyond jobs just in generation, though. We all acknowledge that Scotland hasn't yet fully benefited from the manufacturing and wider supply chains required for the green energy revolution, so the confirmation of a new green industrial strategy is welcome. 
Large-scale publicly-owned energy infrastructure in particular is difficult to do without control over the energy market itself or substantial borrowing powers. But we can use planning, licensing and other powers to maximise conditionality, which both ties the generating companies to maximise local supply chains and to secure a public stake in a stable and reliable long-term investment opportunity. The fair work conditions attached to public procurement contracts and grants as a result of the Scottish Greens Cooperation Agreement are already ensuring that some of the lowest paid workers have their wages boosted to at least the real living wage. That will be strengthened further by the sectoral fair work agreements announced today. The single most effective force for boosting workers' wages, though, are workers themselves organised through their trade unions. So using sectoral fair work agreements to expand sectoral bargaining and boost trade union membership will create that fairer and more prosperous economy. And so would giving workers direct control over their businesses by growing the number of cooperatives. So the review of support provided to co-ops and social enterprises is another opportunity not only to empower workers, but also to make our economy more resilient through local ownership and profits being reinvested in the real economy. Workers will also benefit from other Scottish Green policies, like the removal of peak time rail fares from next month and the pilot programme for the four-day working week. I can attest from the experience of both our party and our parliamentary group staff that the four-day working week can absolutely result not just in no loss of productivity, but in productivity gains because staff are happier and more motivated as a result of a better work-life balance. Removing peak time rail fares won't just help families through the cost of living crisis. It will have wider economic benefits, particularly in areas experiencing labour shortages, where it is currently not worth the money for potential workers from slightly further away to fill gaps in the local workforce due to travel costs. Presiding officer, this morning Anas Sarwar was talking about green extremism in a line presumably drafted for him by his bosses in London. So let's recap what that green extremism is delivering and contrast it with Labour's offer. In government with our SNP colleagues, we are lifting 90,000 children out of poverty through policies like the Scottish Child Payment and mitigation of the Tories' cruel benefit cap. Labour, on the other hand, won't support removing that cap or even abolishing the two-child cap and the rape clause. Recognising that two to 3,000 disproportionately poorer and disabled people die prematurely in Scotland every year due to air pollution, we are delivering low-emission zones in our city centres. Desperate for the votes of Daily Mail columnists, Labour have abandoned their previous support for low emission zones. And we are honest enough to say that lifting children out of poverty and tackling the climate crisis requires those with the broadest shoulders to pay a bit more. Labour, on the other hand, think that the tax rates set by a UK Tory government are just fine and apparently, according to their Shadow Chancellor, can't think of anything that they would spend increased tax revenues on, despite more than four million children in the UK living in poverty. So if lifting children out of poverty, tackling the climate emergency and telling the wealthiest that they have to pay their fair share is extremism, then the Scottish Greens are guilty as charged. And we are proud to have played our part in a programme for government which will make Scotland a fairer, greener nation. And this speech came before Rishi Sunak reneged on every climate promise he's ever made. I, do, I despair of that man, Rishi Sunak. I mean, just seems to be greed. I always think there's something missing in people like that who are just going to be bought by the, the highest bidder. And the next clip, it was an extraordinary exchange between John Mason, um, who took an intervention from Rachel Hamilton. Now, Rachel Hamilton, I have long thought, is one of the sourest MSPs in Hollywood. She looks as if she's got a perpetual bad smell under her nose. But this was an extraordinary admission from her, I thought. I follow Rachel Hamilton, who said that the commitments were flimsy, but I have to say that I see a lot of these as very solid and exciting uh, commitments. And presumably, if Rachel Hamilton thinks they're flimsy, she won't be opposing long-term rent controls, uh, for example. But I particularly welcome also the fact that childcare is to be expanded, care workers to be paid £12 an hour. Of course we all want to go higher on that, but it has to be affordable. I welcome the cladding remediation bill that is to come, the comment that too much land is in the hands of too few. That is a long-term problem for Scotland, but we need to keep making progress. I welcome the reopening of the Independent Living Fund, rent controls as already mentioned, and the fact that we can be both pro-growth and anti-poverty as a party and as a country. I hope everyone had a good holiday during recess. I myself had 10 days in Ireland eh, camping, you'll not be surprised to hear, at different locations. 
And it is fascinating to be in another country, especially when they speak English, and I understand it, eh, to listen to the radio programmes and reading the newspapers. And of course, they have some of the same problems that we have. Eh, for example, they can't get enough workers to do certain jobs. But one of the challenges they have with their finances is slightly different from the challenges that we have. They have such a large budget surplus that the question is what to do with it. If they spent it all in one go in the short term, that would probably fuel inflation. So they were discussing whether they should pay off the national debt or perhaps start a sovereign wealth fund. And I have to say what a good problem that is to have. Now, some opposition speakers say we should forget about independence and concentrate on the cost of living, inflation, and so on. But independence is the answer to these day-to-day -day problems. If Ireland can be so successful as a small, independent country without a lot of the resources that we have, then absolutely so can Scotland. Of course, their situation is not exactly like ours, but it shows that freedom from London gives you agility and the powers to respond much better to challenges as they come along. Of course, one of the challenges with any programme for government these days is whether Westminster may randomly decide to veto something it does not like. We saw this with the deposit return scheme, where officials had been conducting apparently positive discussions right into 2023, and then suddenly, out of the blue, Westminster presses the veto button. This makes it very difficult for any Scottish Government or the Parliament as a whole to plan ahead with certainty. Presumably any of this year's programme for government, including the budget, could be blocked by London if they take a notion to do so. Naturally, the programme for government includes the annual budget, and that should be no surprise. The main uncertainty with the budget remains at a UK level as to when their autumn statement or budget might happen. Logically, the UK budget should come first, we would then build on that, and then local government and other bodies would know the settlements in good time. But in practice, we are left guessing to a large extent as to when the UK budget will be and what it will contain. Now, I'm sure there will be lots of time in future to discuss the Scottish budget as and when we get to it. However, I do welcome the fact that committees are keeping the budget in their thinking all the way through the year. And it is probably worth stressing just now, once again, that if opposition parties would like more spending in some sector, as Rachel Hamilton has just given us in her speech, then they really have the responsibility to say where the money is to come from. Rachel Hamilton. Kerr, presiding officer, John Mason is completely missing the point. The delivery and the outcomes are not as good in, other, in this country as they are in others. So, for example, if they spend 50% of, of GDP of public spending uh, compared to Germany or Denmark or Sweden, the outcomes in Scotland are completely different. So your argument is entirely flawed. What an astonishing statement from Rachel Hamilton. Is she seriously saying that Scotland is somehow incapable of achieving the same thing that any other country can achieve? Why is she in Parliament? Why is she even living in Scotland, if that's how she feels? I find that astonishing. It was amazing that what she said effectively boiled down to, we can't get these things done because we're inferior. Don't you see? <laughs> <laughs> it's insulting, absolutely insulting. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. So, of course, with Holyrood being back from recess, we have First Minister's questions back. And I think Humza did the first couple and then he was away somewhere. So we had Shona Robertson stepping into the role and got a chance to show what she can do. And the first person she took on was Douglas Ross. Well, of course, it was just a year ago that Douglas Ross was urging us to follow Liz Truss over the cliff edge yeah. of her economic catastrophe for our country. That same Douglas Ross now comes to the chamber today wanting us to follow Rishi Sunak yeah. off the same cliff edge of reneging and backsliding on net zero targets. 
And of course, it's no surprise that one of the first people out of the stocks to support Rishi Sunak was Liz Truss oh, herself. Oh, so that is the company that Douglas Ross is keeping. Of course, we are committed to a just transition for Scotland's energy sector. And of course, we only just missed our target by 1.2 percentage, which of course shows... And I would be grateful if we could hear one another speak. Deputy First Minister. Thanks. So I've never allowed a man to shout me down my life. I won't make any exception for Douglas Ross, presiding officer. Then we had a truly astonishing question. Question number five, Brian Whittle. Thank you, presiding officer. To ask the Deputy First Minister what the Scottish Government's response is to reported comments from COSLA and Council leaders questioning the achievability of net zero targets without a detailed plan and adequate funding. <laughs> Um, I would be grateful if we could do members the courtesy of hearing their questions. Deputy First Minister. Oh, I'm sure Brian Whittle must be regretting submitting that question. Yeah, uh, so, a Tory MSP uh, raising net zero less than 24 hours after the Tory Prime Minister uh, hollowed out their plans uh, is a, a matter for pity, perhaps. We'll continue yeah. to work in partnership with local authorities and COSLA to develop a framework between national and local government to agree shared approaches to delivering net zero. And we're doing this at a time when the UK government appears determined to undermine the, that means to deliver the change. The Prime Minister's decision to renege on the UK's key net zero commitments yesterday was a, an unforgivable betrayal of current and future generations. The Conservatives are trading the future of our planet for a cheap electoral ploy, presiding yeah. officer. So I'd like to say to Brian Whittle, if he or his colleagues and Scottish Tories have any influence with the UK government on likely, then please urge them to rethink because you're on the wrong side of history. Yeah. To ask the Scottish Government what impact the Prime Minister's announcement on delaying a range of net zero targets will have on Scotland's target to become net zero by 2045. Cabinet Secretary Mary McCallum. Presenting officer, the Prime Minister's statement yesterday was an unforgivable betrayal of current and future generations and has again put the UK Government on the wrong side of history. His reckless plans have been branded shocking and hugely disappointing by Al Gore and hugely damaging and a colossal error by business and consumer groups alike. Now, I'd like to be crystal clear, though, that despite the UK government reneging on their key net zero commitments, the Scottish government will remain firmly committed to yep. tackling the twin crises of climate change and biodiversity loss. We have always been clear that the delivery of Scotland's climate ambition is contingent on action by the UK Government in reserved and shared areas, and yesterday's announcements will undoubtedly have serious implications for the delivery of climate ambition here in Scotland. Despite the, the far-reaching implications, we were given no notice by the UK Government yesterday, so we are now currently having to urgently assess the impact on Scotland, and it's right that we take the time uh, to do that. But right now, however, Parliament will recognise that the sheer scale of the Prime Minister's astonishing policy reversals will have a potentially significant impact on developments here in Scotland, not least on the preparation of our own draft climate change plan. Yeah. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. Westminster was back from recess. They're now off again. And Deirdre Brock, as often happens, was um, having a little engage with Penny Mordaunt. I wonder, given her claim to have a keen interest in events north of the border, if she's had a chance to look at the IPPR think tank report on the State of the Union. It suggests that the kind of belligerent, muscular unionism we see on display from her Tory benches is now utterly counterproductive, and not just on Thursday mornings, but day in, day out. This report highlights the brittle and contemptuous approach of Westminster to Scotland and its people. Professor uh, Richard Wynne-Jones of Cardiff University Governance Centre and co-author of the report said, attempts to champion a single version of Britishness to buttress what some have termed the precious union are not only doomed to failure, but are likely to be self-defeating. Doomed to failure, Madam Deputy Speaker. A phrase that could be applied to so many of this government's endeavours. Brexit, HS2, numerous defence projects such as the Ajax tanks debacle. I could go on, but they never listen. They never learn. So it might also help the leader to read an article by the respected BBC financial journalist Paul Lewis of the Moneybox programme, who recently wrote, and I am quoting him, I once coined the acronym TABUS. 
things are better in Scotland as a shorthand for the forward-looking social policies of that country. And it gets truer all the time. So once again, Madam Deputy Speaker, isn't it time for a debate, even in the dog days of this government, to look at Scotland and learn how, as Paul Lewis said, to do things better? And we won't bother including Penny Mordaunt's response to Deirdre there. I think you can guess that she didn't um, take the point. Perhaps she did get the point, but chose to ignore it. And sticking with Westminster, sometimes we use phrases, I think, in Scotland without really knowing or thinking that they might be considered rude elsewhere. And two cheeks of the same arse has just become such a common phrase used to describe Scottish Labour and, well, increasingly British Labour and the Tories as the Labour policies morph completely into Tory policies in a in a desperate attempt to fight for the same voters. Um, so when Chris Law used the phrase, it kind of didn't seem an odd phrase for me listening to it, but it certainly seems to have rattled the speaker. So given that the Tories and Labour are two cheeks of the same arse, offering no change, no vision, no hope, does the Prime Minister agree that the only way Scottish voters can rid themselves of these... Oh, 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 no. I'm not going to both stand up, so one of us is going to give way and it won't be me. Can I just say, let's think about language, let's be more temperate and let's make sure that this Parliament can be proud. The pride of this Parliament will shine through, but certainly not using language. Happy to change the offending word with bottom. <laughs> Given that the Tories and Labour two cheeks to the same bottom, offering no change, no vision and no hope, does the Prime Minister agree that the only way for Scottish voters to rid themselves of these heinous policies is to vote SNP to leave Westminster forever? But didn't you hear the speaker, man? It was going to hurt their pride, <laughs> their proud institution. I don't know how they can have any pride in that institution. I don't know about you, but it certainly seems to me there are a lot worse things than using the word arse in Parliament, uh, not least reneging on your net zero ambitions, promoting trident, starving children, selling off the NHS, sending desperate people to Rwanda. And he was on a roll because this is Chris Law again, this time on the climate debate. And although he didn't use any offensive words, he was still quite clear what he was talking about. There are 352 Conservative MPs in this house, and only the minister's here to talk about the biggest existential threat we have to our planet and humanity. I find it astonishing. It's utterly disappointing that not a single member of the UK government who's in power, who can steer at the next COP and all the meetings ahead. And by the way, the rest of us in this chamber all want to be with you on this. This isn't competition or a political foray. This is about getting it done together. Because I cannot sleep either. When I think about speaking to my nieces, speaking to schools in my constituencies, what am I supposed to say? I've been to every single COP since uh, 2017. And each time I go there, the time it gets more pressing. I also like to make the point that um, the member for Liverpool Walton said, and he said, fossil fuel companies knew the harms and spread this information. Wake up, smell the CO2 emissions. We need to harness that, realize what's happened. We can correct the wrongs and correct the wrongs now, because the future is not going to be protected unless we do it now. I studied social anthropology at university, and Margaret Mead had a very famous quote when she said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Yeah. So if I can make my plea to this room, and to this parliament, and to our parliamentarians, and out there in the world, the UK can lead, and it'll be these thoughtful, committed citizens in the room, and our responsibility is to get there and do it. Thank you. And actually, if you watch the video on Parliament TV, the debate was in, I don't know if it's Westminster Hall, one of the other rooms anyway, and it's about the climate emergency and apart from the minister there wasn't a single Tory there you know they're bent on extracting as much money as they can even if it kills the planet um, and they couldn't even be bothered to turn up for the debate or maybe we're too ashamed to turn up for it perhaps mm. 
Now, when talking about Westminster Tory dishonesty, Peter Stefanovich, again, showing up Rishi to be the liar that he is. This time, his series of ludicrous claims about He was trying to say, this is how we're not going to become big government and start invading your lives, and then the other guy rebutting him, essentially saying, this has not been policy, ergo he's not changed anything. He's actually just saying, I'm keeping things as they are currently. Yeah, in fact, an an astonishing attempt at political spin, which by and large failed, I'm delighted to say, because it was just so ridiculous and it it spawned a whole load of internet memes about other things that, you know, this government isn't going to privatise candy floss made on the moon, you know, ridiculous level stuff. But it just shows you how gullible he thinks we are, but judging from the fact he's sitting in the Prime Minister's position how gullible a lot of voters actually are so the idea that government can tell you what to eat gone prime minister seems to be referencing a statement he made yesterday about a proposal to make us change our diet by taxing meat but that's never been government policy so it's not even a policy change in fact successive tory leaders have repeatedly rejected suggestions that meat should be taxed So when the Prime Minister says this... So the idea that government can tell you what to eat? Gone. He's just making it up. He might as well say the government is abandoning measures that will prevent me from changing my underpants every day. The idea that government can force you to have seven different bins in your home? Gone. Again, there was never a proposal that Britain should be required to have seven different bins, and it's never been government policy that they should. So he's again talking bollocks. The idea that government can create new taxes to discourage flying or taking holidays? Gone. Again, that's never been government policy, so it's not a policy change. No frequent flyer tax has ever been seriously mooted by the government. He might as well say he's abandoned plans to tax Santa's sleigh at Christmas. The idea that government can tell you how many passengers to have in your car? Gone. Again, that's never been government policy, so it's not a change in policy. We'll never impose these unnecessary and heavy-handed measures on you, the British people. Never underestimate just how thick this government thinks we all are. That's a doubter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is a bit depressing that... It's the emperor's new clothes, you know. We're all sitting here going, that makes no sense what he's just said. He just stands there and lies. He stands there and gives a completely inaccurate version of what's going on and what he's doing because some people who vote for him are too stupid to check. That was us moving away from Westminster and and moving into the world of social media, which is where sometimes you get a different perspective. Last month, we showed how the BBC and STV, for example, could have completely different degrees of information in their reports about Scottish issues. And this month, we've got the BBC reporting the fact that there is this material called RAAC found in various school buildings, public buildings, and it does have a shelf life and there's concern suddenly that a lot of schools are at risk. It was debated in Holyrood and the BBC's reporting of what the minister said was somewhat different to what she actually said. The Social Justice Secretary, Shirley Ann Somerville, hit out at the English Education Secretary for closing schools down south. She said she was causing chaos and unnecessary alarm. Did she? I don't think she said that at all. Let's have a listen. Well, the issue of RAC has been in discussion for some time and action has been taken. The UK Government Department of Education changed their approach for RAC, specifically in schools, on 31st August. A change in approach which Scottish ministers learned through the media. Presiding officer, events of recent weeks have highlighted a deeply concerning level of chaos in the UK government overseen by the Secretary of State for Education. It is totally unacceptable that UK ministers prioritise briefing the media before alerting or sharing crucial information with devolved governments. What can only be described as a complete dereliction of duty. It wasn't until 1856 on Sunday 3rd September that the UK government shared four pages of rack photographs dating as far back as 2018. Photographs, not detailed or comprehensive structural reports, just photographs with the bare minimum of supporting context. To be frank, the engagement has been insulting. Now I can confirm to the Chamber that following receipt of the photographs, we are still waiting detailed and comprehensive structural reports 
which we requested on Sunday 3rd September and again on Tuesday 5th September. The withholding of this information was completely reckless and irresponsible. The Secretary of State's disregard of the work of devolved governments could not be clearer. But more importantly, it has spread unnecessary alarm amongst parents, staff and children. Now, despite the best efforts of the unionist press, they couldn't get round the fact that RAAC had gone in in the 50s and 60s into public buildings, which long predated devolution. So this is not one that they can pin on the Scottish Government. And this next clip also talks about the media. This from an unexpected source for us. Marlene and I were invited to record a speech given by the Reverend Doug Gay as a guest of the Christians for Independence group. And he gave a really interesting speech, which we have on our YouTube channel, if you'd like to see it. It's called What Just Happened? And part of that speech, he looks at the issue that we have with media in Scotland and how the media and politicians' response to the media forms a kind of vicious cycle. So here is the Reverend Doug Gay. The growing need for fact-checking sites is something that I think shames our politics. We need to be committed to accountability in the way we present statistics. Think of the famous Liberal Democrat bar charts. When our commitment to spin and damage limitation overtakes our commitment to not bearing false witness, we are in big trouble. Now, of course, party behaviour reflects hostile media, billionaire owners, Anglo-centric bias. Those are real problems in UK and Scottish media. But we're now, I think, in a cycle in public life where journalists despise political spin. And because they despise political spin, they attack more and more aggressively in interviews to try and catch people out and find the weak spots. And because politicians know that they're going to be attacked so strongly, they increasingly refuse to give straight answers or to admit to not knowing something or to admit to getting something wrong. So we are creating a vicious spiral of public debate, actually, in which metanoia is becoming impossible. It's being equated with political naivety. Why would we ever admit ferries have been a disaster when our opponents will ruthlessly weaponise that against us? Why would we admit to having led the public debate over sex-based rights and gender identity in a way that has been short-sighted and socially divisive? If we perpetuate a politics based on never apologise, never explain, then that is the wrong kind of metamorphosis. It's changing our politics into the wrong kind of shapes, not better shapes. And yes, despite the real difficulties, we need to work to reshape politics so that we can look for more areas of common ground. The polarisation of public life and the weaponisation of disagreement is leading us to a place where what we sometimes call bipartisanship is harder and harder to receive, to achieve. Our politics is becoming dominated by a cynicism and a ruthlessness which mean that if we admit to agreeing with or sharing ground with an opponent, we will lose an opportunity to attack them. We urgently need to find more issues where we can cooperate and collaborate. There are important politics areas in Scottish and UK politics where the big challenges in front of us are not primarily ideological and where we should be putting our heads together, not butting our heads together. Let's think social care. Let's think pensions. Let's think support for families with disabilities. Let's think public health approaches to drug deaths. Let's think support for Gaelic. Let's think commissioning and running reliable ferry services. Let's think net zero. Let's think our policy on hydrogen, where I think we're making some big mistakes. Let's think prison reform. Some good points there, I thought. For sure, I think the issue is, is what he is describing with the tough questions versus spin versus different ways of asking tough questions versus spins. What he's describing is an arms race. And those only really go in one direction. Unless some massive cataclysmic shift occurs in the rules of the game. So mm -hmm. I don't see that ramping down anytime soon. 
which is a depressing thought, really, because he is right. There are certain areas that shouldn't be weaponized. There should actually be areas that, that people have across our parliament, for example, work together and try and get right. And I always think watching the committees at um, Holyrood, there's much better discussion you know, where they're working together on a particular topic. There's much more cooperative and reasonable discussion than you get in the sort of pantomime of the of the main chamber. I have seen more MPs calling out instances where things are being weaponised and in fact we even saw Maurice Golding, who was opposed to Sunak's about turn on, on net zero, accusing the Prime Minister of turning net zero into culture wars, creating a wedge issue, which he is, you know, you can see that that's possibly what he's trying to do. Either that or he's trying to make a lot more money out of it for a lot more of his rich friends. But, you know, it's only, I think, once the, the politicians on all sides stop engaging in that kind of... I don't know. I mean, I don't know how the how how you can row it back now because the whole point of having that Holyrood Parliament, the whole reason they sit in a horseshoe, it was supposed to be a Parliament reflecting lots of different views, and yet we've gone from having lots of different parties that were represented in the first Parliament to, you know, just the big parties left which is a shame because actually I would like to see some, you know, SSP members in there. There certainly were SSP members at one point. This is kind of why I made the analogy of like an arms race or in this case almost in like a Cold War type standoff. If both sides are constantly trying to make sure that, that they're in the advantageous position and if they see a call for cooperation as effectively exposing intentionally a chink in their armour, they're never going to do it. So this situation just continues to escalate and escalate. Maybe that's the answer then. Maybe whoever takes and wins the moral high ground by saying, yes, we got that thing wrong. Let's work together and get it right. And, you know, you can slaughter me in the press about it if you like, but that's still not fixing the thing. That's just taking unfair advantage of something we should all be resolving. I mean, no, no government's ever going to get everything right. And they should be open to scrutiny and we should be able to call them out if they get it wrong. But it's extremely unhealthy in terms of organisations, for example, if you've got the kind of culture where mistakes are not tolerated, because that means you can't innovate, it means you can't take risks, it means you can't try things out, it means you can't change anything. You know, you end up with a culture of fear and everybody too busy covering their own backs to to actually work together and i have certainly worked in some organizations a bit like that and it's not it's not a a a healthy thing to do the issue with even the scenario you just described there of taking the moral high ground also lies in spin because if you think about it the average member of the public is not watching every debate or parliament tv constantly so if you even take the moral high ground and go, ah, well, yes, I got this wrong and you can say bad things about me, I don't care, I'm the moral superior here, that's all well and good. But if all the person on the street sees is the next day's headline, which blatantly just says, these guys got it wrong and they're terrible, they don't hear the part where you said, and I admit I got it wrong and I'm the moral superior. They just see the bit that says, ah, God, uh, these guys, they got it wrong. Ah, I can only trust these people who have exposed this. (laughs) (laughs) Which means we're stuck with the rubbish media we've got. Very depressing. (laughs) I've just found out from the Labour front bench that they are going to be supporting the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats, and they will not be backing a motion that says... The arm's length organisations of this council should be real living wage employers. Now, to me, this seems actually unfathomable, as if Councillor Day has not already had a bad enough week backing Airbnb, he's now decided to backtrack on workers' pay. I literally cannot believe that the Labour Party, the supposed party of workers, is not going to support this council sending an incredibly clear message to all of our arm's length organisations that they should be real living wage employers. And what's worse is we've heard how brilliant it is that the other ones are living wage employers. Well, we're literally today saying, but if you can't manage it, then don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. I hope that Labour councillors were listening to their Conservative colleagues, because I would like to quote them back. This is what they are agreeing with. 
Improving wages is a great aspiration. But it's all about balance, isn't it? It's all about balance. Well, I actually don't think that the families in this city that are struggling, they're not struggling to choose between heating and eating. They're struggling to heat their homes and to feed their families. I don't think that they think that this is all about balance. They don't think that it's a great aspiration if maybe, maybe we could try and pay them the living wage. I think that if this council goes ahead and makes the decision that I think is about to happen, I think it will be a damning indictment on us as a council and I am so sorry for the residents in this city about the message that we are sending. I really hope that Labour backtrack again and make the decision to actually back a motion that says that workers deserve to be paid a living wage. I just don't recognise the Labour Party from uh, being as being socialist or you know on the, the side of workers at all. But siding with the Tories to vote against requiring the real living wage to be paid is pretty low. Yeah, when you're taking either the Tory option or, in all other cases, the safest option, yeah, you're not really trailblazing anything that would help anyone, mm. worker or otherwise. And that largely why um, Labour started to lose ground in Scotland in the first place, I think. Marlene and I were out in Rutherglen speaking to some of the, the people who were holding stalls there because the Rutherglen by-election is coming up next week and Labour were very, very sure that they were going to take the seat with ease. I'm not sure that they're quite as cocky this week because they have been sliding in the polls quite a bit. But while we were out and about, we dropped into the SNP hub and managed to catch Keith Brown. I see the Labour Party are saying Rutherglen's ready for a new start. What do you think? Well, there's no evidence of any new start from Labour. It seems to be a continuation of Conservative policies and including the name Conservative. They stamped the status quo, now so does Labour. So the only proposition that's going to benefit people here is Katie Loudon. Do you think you managed to persuade the Rutherglen folk? Well, I think we're working very hard. We've got a lot of people out, uh, and again, I know it's a bit of a cliche, a good response to the doorstep. So, so no, it's, it's we we had a, a bit of a. I wouldn't say it was a very positive response up on the high street, chatting to people, and an awful lot of folks saying, "You know what, folk are coming out with this now. Why bother? Why send it to anyone anywhere? They're all you know out for themselves." I mean, there's an awful lot of that kind of apathy. It's hard to get through. I didn't know how to even start getting through to someone saying that to me. I think in one sense people are under the cosh with the cost of living, but they also know that Westminster government routinely ignores Scotland, you know, denies the right to a democratic referendum. It's a hard thing to overcome and that can demotivate people, but that's down to us to make sure that we can motivate people to come out and say, Katie Loudon can make a change. She's already said she's going to take a, a private member's bill through in terms of a, a mortgage interest relief. So. Whatever their background, having an MP is going to work on your behalf is most important. And the one most likely to do that is Katie Loudon. We'll find out next week whether Keith's optimism there is, is rewarded. For sure. Um, certainly Labour have thrown everything at it that they've got. They've been, in fact, I saw something on Twitter today. It was a, a mock-up photo of the Dalai Lama at some event. And the caption was, Dalai Lama visits Rutherglen. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, the, the places... And actually, it's quite um, been quite interesting that the Labour have started to go down in the polls the more they bring Labour peers and, and MPs up from England to tell the jocks what how to vote. You know, I don't think that necessarily goes down well. But as we found, and you, you can see this on our um, the little film we made of our visit to Rutherglen, which is on our YouTube channel, the thing that I found the most worrying, actually, was, was the amount of just apathy... Uh, people who don't seem to find any political party is is cutting it for them. So, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing if you want to make a difference. And if we want to get people out to vote in a plebiscite election, we're going to have to find some way of getting them engaged. And I hope somebody somewhere in the Yes movement is working on that because it's a huge task. You know, we, we could lose the next one just by sheer apathy if we're not careful. Yeah, I think the trouble there is you kind of have to be able to show people results and have them agree with them. It kind of goes back to uh, yeah, it goes back to the idea of lying politicians and spin again, which is that if you've seen enough people come into office promising they're going to fix X, Y and Z and leave office without having fixed X, Y and Z and said oh well, it's because of the situation left to me by the last guy, as, as often happens then 
people do just start to get this impression of the people that are ideally working for them as being people that just kind of lie to them and pl- pl- placate them. And um... That's a really good point, actually, in that everybody in politics gets dragged down when somebody in politics is found to be, like you say, consistently lying. And, you know, I think Boris Johnson and his antics, he probably did more to, to sh- knock people's faith in politics uh, because before, fair enough, you might violently disagree with somebody, but I don't think there was the same distrust in... And it's, it's come over from America as well, the kind of Trumpian post-truth world. You know, if you can't rely on what anybody is saying, then how can you agree with any of them? You know, because you, you know it's none of it's true. And I don't think that is the case with a lot of our politicians. I think a lot of our MPs and MSPs are committed, work hard, trying to do the best for their constituents in the face of almost overwhelming negativity and, and criticism and, you know, in a, a restricted position that they find themselves in with with limited powers. But people aren't going to vote, I don't think, because of how rubbish the current situation is, unless you can give them some idea that the future situation will be better, which kind of brings us back full circle to where we started this podcast with Humza's imagine we've just one speech, how would that feel? Well, that's very different to the kind of feeling we were getting on the streets in Rutherglen, but also that uh, Future Voices clip about values and we could finish with another one of theirs, actually. I've got more than one. Yeah, the working theme for this episode is aspirations, roadblocks, and lies. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a Fleetwood Mac album. Um, okay, so yes, just to cheer ourselves all up, I think we've got time to squeeze in another of the, the short clips from Future Voices. And this is an ordinary person imagining what life might be like in an independent Scotland once all the dust settled and we start trying to be the, the nation that we aspire to be without the, the shackles of the remains of the British Empire breathing down our neck. We catch up with care worker Linda. I can't believe how good I feel these days and I think it's because everyone around me is feeling happier and more confident. As a care worker, Linda has seen improvements at work, in wider society and on a personal level which she puts down to Scotland's ability to radically redesign the care system for workers and the people who depend on them. I love working in the care home, but it wasn't always like that. There used to be staff shortages and people were off with stress, and it's not like that now. Things have definitely changed for the better. With the right to care, health and a true living wage now enshrined in law, the impact on well-being and the wider economy has been hugely significant. I'm paid properly for my skills and experience now, but more importantly, the residents are benefiting from the, the better quality of care. And people have got money in their pockets, so we're more productive, and that benefits the economy because people can afford to buy things. Linda has also noticed the wider benefits to Scotland's society since becoming independent. I think Scotland taking care of its own affairs has given us a sense of responsibility as well. You see people out walking and cycling and playing sport and people have taken on that duty of responsibility for their own health and and looking after other people. We need to appreciate what we have actually got. And it's really working. Scotland's already making progress up Europe's League of Wellbeing. So, for Linda and many others, taking responsibility since Scotland's independence has been good for the nation's constitution in more ways than one. Sean Harris, Scottish Vision, Dunfermline. So that's the kind of society we could be living in. That's something to hold on to, isn't it? Those are some of our lofty ideals. (laughs) Right, that's it for this month. And thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll catch you again next week with our normal podcast. And Bits and Pieces will be back again at the end of October. It's going to be quite an interesting month, October. So should be a good one. Thanks for listening. Bye now. Bye. You've been listening to Bits and Pieces. Bits and Pieces.